Well, in coming in our text today to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, we come to some Old Testament examples of New Testament precepts. You really cannot preach the New Testament without regular reference to the Old Testament because there are so many quotations and allusions and references to the Old Testament all throughout the New Testament Scriptures. And you really cannot preach the Old Testament properly without constant reference to the New Testament, which is, of course, the fulfillment of that which the Old Testament speaks of and points to. As somebody has said, the New Covenant is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed, and that is absolutely true. And so we'll never understand the New Testament properly without the old and vice versa. And Peter draws from the Old Testament today to give some examples, some illustrations of what he has been saying in verses 1 through 4 in his instructions to believing wives. And we take up the last two verses of those instructions, which take up verses 1 through 6, and this is our third sermon on this section. You say, why three sermons to wives? Well, because Peter wrote six verses to wives, and it's hard to take more than two at a time. You say, well, what about the husbands? Well, we'll get to that. You come back next week. We'll take the one verse that uh, Peter spoke to the husbands, and we'll do our best to break that apart and understand it. It is evident, is it not, that Peter expects his New Testament readers to be familiar with the Old Testament Scripture. He says in verse 5, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. The Old Testament, you understand, was the Bible of the early church. That's all the Bible they had. The New Testament wasn't written yet. It was written over a period of time and And then it wasn't really collected and copied and circulated until uh, well into the second century. And so, and in some cases, perhaps even into the third century. And so the early Christians didn't have the New Testament scriptures. They had the old. And that was sufficient. And that's what they knew. That's what they read and studied and memorized. And Peter expects that his New Testament readers will understand the Old Testament scriptures. And so he reinforces and illustrates what he has said in verses 1 through 4 with these examples. And what we have is, first of all, in verse 5, unnamed examples of inward beauty. And secondly, in verse 6, one specific example of inward beauty. First, some general examples, unnamed, referred to in verse 5. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And in verse 5, we see these unnamed examples introduced. We see the unnamed persons described, and we see the specific activities commended, which Peter wants us to focus upon. The unnamed examples are introduced with four different connecting words and phrases. We have a look forward, a look backward, a look way backward, and then a phrase that connects the present with the past. 
First of all, there's a look forward, and that's the first word in the verse. For, having said what he said in verses 1 through 4, he now continues, and this is a connecting particle, translated for, a very good translation, to introduce additional explanatory material to add to that which he has already said about the way that God expects wives to live and to relate to their husbands. And so, with the word for, he looks forward to what he's going to give us in verses 5 and 6. But then there is a look or a glance backward when he says, For in this manner, in this manner, and that, of course, takes us back to what he said before, in the manner that I have just described, in the way that I am telling you wives, I want you to behave and relate to your husbands because this is the way God wants you to behave and relate to your husbands in this manner. That is, let your adorning not be merely outward, the arranging of hair, the wearing of gold, or putting on a fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God, for in this manner. And so there's this backward glance to previous instruction. And then there's a look way back over the centuries when he says in this manner, in former times. And that is a reference to the Old Testament era. Here is a general reference to Old Testament examples in former times, before our own era before the first century, before the ushering in of the new covenant, before the coming of Jesus Christ. In former times, there were people who lived like this. And so he looks way back to former times. And then he connects the present with the past by that little word, also. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. You remember that word adorn from verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Verse 4, rather let it, that is your adornment, being the hidden person of the heart. And now he tells us, for in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. And so now reaching into the past, he pulls it together with the present, and he says there is a connection here. There is a commonality here. There is a continuity here which God wants us to understand and to recognize. The Jews identified four mothers of Israel, Sarah, Rebekah, Rachel, and Leah, And that's probably the holy women that he has in mind here, though because they are unnamed and unspecified, we really don't know who any of them are except Sarah that he names in the next verse. We know for sure that he has her in mind. But since he obviously has several women in mind, maybe dozens, scores, hundreds, thousands, we don't know. We probably don't have enough information, even in the Old Testament, to be absolutely sure. But it's obvious that Peter has in mind a, an array of women 
who in Old Testament days displayed the kind of attributes that he has now enjoined upon New Testament believers and particularly believing wives. And by this connection, then, he tells us that many of the principles and precepts of the Old Covenant are unchanged. The Old Covenant is the old one. It's not the new one. The New Covenant is the new covenant, and it's not the old one. And there's a lot of um, debate and, and dialogue and conversation and friendly banter and some not so friendly among Christians as to how much of the old carries over into the new and, and so forth. And we certainly can't settle all of those questions today or probably in ten lifetimes. But one thing is clear. There is a connection. And it's not just a very weak one. It's apparently a very strong one and a very practical one. Because the kind of behavior that God expects out of wives in the New Covenant era is very similar, in some respects absolutely identical, to the kind of behavior that God expected out of wives in the Old Testament era. Nothing has changed in that regard. After introducing these unnamed examples, he then describes them for us with two phrases. He says, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God... Holy women who trusted in God. These are the persons that he has in mind. Holy women who trusted in God. Holy means separate, sanctified, set apart as belonging to God. Saints is the New Testament equivalent of holy ones, holy women. And so these women are those who belong to God. They are They are God's people. They are set apart unto God in some very clear and obvious way. And I think that way is made more clear with the next descriptive phrase, holy women who trusted in God, or some translations have, who hoped in God. And either translation is correct. They trusted in God. They hoped in God. They are women who trusted in God and they looked forward to the future redemption that God had promised. They were women who believed the word of God. They were women who believed the promise of God regarding a coming Messiah. They were women who were hoping with that steadfast believing kind of hope that the Bible speaks of, not a cross-your-fingers-hope-it'll-happen sort of hope, but a steadfast believing, trusting certainty that the God who had made promises regarding salvation through the Messiah that he would send would fulfill every one of those promises. And all the other promises that he had made would be fulfilled as well. They believed that. They lived that way. They, they trusted in God, a present participle. They continued to believe. They continued to trust. They continued to hope over a long period of time. Yea, over a lifetime, they trusted in God in this way. They lived expecting God to do what He had promised. As we, New Covenant believers, trust in God looking forward to our future redemption. Like they did. 
We say, well, Christ has come. We're not looking forward. Oh, our redemption is not complete. We are looking forward. We're very much looking forward. There are yet many promises which God has made regarding the redemption of His people that have not yet been realized and will not be fully realized until Christ comes again. And we are looking forward to the coming of Christ even as they were looking forward to the coming of Christ. They didn't perhaps even recognize that they were looking forward to what we now call the first coming of Christ, and we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ. They just knew that promises had been made regarding a coming Messiah, a coming Christ, and they believed those promises. They were looking for the fulfillment of those promises, and they died in faith, believing that God would do exactly what He had promised. And with the coming of Christ, a great part of that fulfillment fell into place, but there's still a lot more to come. And their faith was really just like ours. Believing God. Hoping in God. Looking forward to what God has in store for those who trust in Him. But what are the specific activities which Peter is commending in the lives of these women as an example to to New Testament, New Covenant wives today? For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. (laughs) And here are two activities that he is illustrating and reinforcing from these Old Testament examples. These holy women who trusted in God, number one, cultivated an inward beauty, just like he has told wives to do in earlier verses. And number two, they were submissive to their husbands, just like he also told wives to do. These women cultivated an inward beauty. In this manner, these holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. And we learned last week how they adorned themselves, not in the merely outward, in the the uh, wearing of gold and the fixing of your hair and the um, arranging of your outward apparel, but something far more important, the inward person of the heart in a a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And now he tells us this is the way the holy women of old adorned themselves. They understood this precept. They acted upon this principle. This is the way that they developed inward beauty and godliness and commended themselves both to God and to their husbands and to others. They developed an incorruptible inward beauty in this way. I didn't mention it last week. It's so obvious, but I guess it bears mentioning that when you focus upon that which is external, you do understand you are fighting a losing battle, don't you? Because time is not on your side. But when you focus upon developing inward beauty, time is on your side because that's incorruptible and the more you develop it, the greater beauty that it has. That doesn't fade. It takes on more and more and more luster. When you are focusing upon inward beauty that 
reflects godly character, then you are focusing on and investing in that which is eternal, that which never fades. It's an incorruptible beauty, and it's a beauty that will grow and develop and increase in value as time goes on. So just from a practical standpoint, which should gain our greatest attention? That which is going to fade and disappear in spite of all of our greatest efforts, or that which is going to last forever and is going to be valuable depending upon how much effort we put into it now. Well, these women that Peter commends to us understood these things, and they concentrated upon inward beauty more than upon outward beauty. And not only the cultivation of inward beauty, referred to in verses 3 and 4 and carried over now into verse 5, but also submission to their husbands. And that takes us all the way back to verse 1. You might have thought that that little item had dropped off the page as Peter had now turned attention to inward beauty and what is the real adornment and the gentle and quiet spirit. But here he pulls the two right back together. He had them both in view all along. The holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Being submissive to their own husbands. And here's the link between inward beauty and the submissive attitude. You really can't have one without the other. They go together. And there is this strong emphasis in the New Testament upon the submission of wives. I was talking to another pastor of another church just this week, and he asked me what I was preaching on, and I said, First Peter, and he said, Where are you? And I said, Chapter 3, and he said, Uh-oh. And he said, um, I wonder why there's so much emphasis in the New Testament upon wives being submissive. He paused for reply, and I said, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, really. The why is not really revealed to us. It's just, what does God say? We've got to be faithful to what God says, whether he explains it to us or not. I don't know why. But it's obvious that this is what God has said, because he said it so many different times in so many different ways. And here it is again. And so we've got to teach God's word. We, we can't trim God's word to avoid offense. There's so much of that in the day in which we live, picking and choosing and carefully avoiding certain subjects because they are not popular, they're not politically correct, they, they aren't welcomed in our society today. Well, don't we understand that's why we have so many problems in our society today. The more we cast aside the word of God, the, the more degradation, the more, the more turmoil, the more... Uh, sin, the more problems, the more seemingly insurmountable and insolvable problems we will have in our society today. It's exactly because we are avoiding certain subjects to keep from offending people that we are unable, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to help people. The very medicine that we need is in many cases the medicine which is carefully avoided. And this is one of those areas. But here it is again. Submission of wives to their husbands. This is God's instruction. It is God's requirement. 
And then from the unnamed examples of inward beauty in verse 5, Peter moves to the one specific example of inward beauty in verse 6 when he says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So now we know at least one Old Testament woman that Peter had in mind, and it is Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the first woman who is named in that great chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We find these words in Hebrews 11:11. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Sometimes in reading the account of Abraham and Sarah, we focus mostly upon Abraham and his great faith, and we think that all of the blessings and promises and results that came was because of Abraham's faith, and we might think that Sarah was just sort of a tag-along and really wasn't personally involved in all of this, but if we think that, we are very, very, very much mistaken. Because if Abraham was a man of faith, and he was, then Sarah was a woman of faith. And we need to understand that. She also believed God. And that's why she was able to conceive seed. That's why she was able to bear that promised child. It was because of her faith. Without her faith, that would not have happened. She was a real woman of faith. She was a godly woman. And what did she do? Well, number one, she obeyed her husband, and number two, she respected her husband. First of all, she obeyed her husband. As Sarah obeyed Abraham. That's what being submissive to your own husbands means, obeying them. That's, that tells you what that means in case you are, are struggling with the concept. And so this reinforces again. We had it in verse 5, have it again in verse 6, had it earlier in verse 1. Again and again and again, God makes it very plain what his plan, what his design is. Now, Sarah obeyed Abraham in some exceedingly difficult circumstances. When God called Abraham to leave the Ur of the Chaldees, have you ever thought about what that meant for Sarah? To leave home and family and community and relatives. All that was true, of course, of both of them, of Abraham. But it was certainly equally true of Sarah and probably more greatly true of Sarah because these things probably are even more dear and more important to the woman than to the man. And she had to obey God. And obeying God in her case meant obeying her husband. If her husband said, this is what God wants us to do, then she said, this is what we will do. If Abraham said, this is what I must do in order to please and obey God, Sarah said, I'm your wife and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do the same. That wasn't easy. And think of the other things that she had to do. They had had only recently arrived in the promised land, the land of Canaan, which didn't look so promising at that time, until famine drove them down to the land of Egypt. And remember what happened there? Abraham said, you know, Sarah, you are an exceedingly beautiful woman. Even though the Bible tells us that she paid more attention to inward beauty than outward beauty, the Bible also tells us she was exceedingly beautiful. God had made her that way. But she didn't treasure that as her greatest asset. She cultivated inward godliness as her greater, greatest asset. But nevertheless, she was a beautiful woman. And Abraham said, you are an exceedingly beautiful woman, and I'm afraid they might kill me to get you. So do me a favor, Sarah, and tell them you're my sister. 
And we talk about Abraham being a great man of faith. We don't mean a perfect man of faith. That was an exceedingly disappointing lapse of faith. Now what's Sarah going to do when her husband makes a request like that of her? What did she do? She obeyed. Was she obeying because she trusted the wisdom of Abraham? I don't think so. I think she recognized that probably wasn't really the right course of action. But what was she trusting? She was trusting God. The holy women who trusted in God. That's where her trust was. She was trusting God to fulfill his promises. She was trusting God that if she obeyed his word and lived like God told her to live, that he would take care of her. And you know, he did. When I think about that story, and I hadn't really thought of it this way much until this week, we think of how God rescued that sorry, undeserving rascal Abraham and got him out of his dilemma in Egypt that he obviously didn't deserve. It certainly wasn't Abraham's faith that God was honoring in that situation. I wonder whose faith he was honoring. Sarah. Sarah, who trusted God and obeyed her husband. And God honored that obedience. And on we could go. You know... Abraham didn't learn his lesson in Egypt. He turned around and did the same thing later with Abimelech. And you know what? Sarah, who had learned her lesson of faith and trust and how God honors it, she obeyed again. Same sorry situation in another setting, another country, another king. And Abraham makes the same ungodly request and Sarah obeys in the same submissive way, trusting God. And God honors, I think, Sarah's faith. And protects her and Abraham once again. Now you see, that doesn't make sense to the world. That doesn't make sense to our Adamic nature, does it? To obey something that we find very questionable. Really, We really wonder if that's right or not. One of those really difficult areas to figure out, is this really what I ought to do? But not clearly having... Instruction from God not to do this. I will fall back on the basic principle that God wants me to obey my husband. And I will obey him trusting God. And God was faithful. God honored Sarah's faith. So it wasn't easy. The Bible doesn't really tell us anything about Sarah's feelings or response when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. But can you imagine how that tore at a mother's heart? We think about how it tore at a father's heart, and we often use that as an example of the father heart of God giving his own son, and it's a wonderful illustration of that. But have you ever thought about how that tore at the heart of Sarah, the mother? And yet we find no record that she protested, no record that she tried to stop him, no record that she objected in any way. She obeyed her husband, trusting in God. And God honored that. But she not only obeyed her husband, we read, 
She respected her husband. She called him. Oh, you, you, you don't mean this, do you? She called him. La, 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 la. Lord. Whoa, that's over the top. Now that is over the top. Well, I think we need to understand that this was a customary cultural address in that day. And customs and culture do change. We have a wonderful custom in the South to teach our children, not as much as we used to, you don't hear it as much, but to teach our children to say sir and ma'am. And if our children are in a foreign country, like up north, (laughs) and say sir and ma'am, they're going to be ridiculed. That sounds so strange. And we've got a lot of people here from the north, and you know of what, what I speak. I remember as a boy in Illinois hearing the first person in my life I'd ever heard to say sir and ma'am, a uh, young fellow who'd come up from West Virginia, and he talked that way, sir and ma'am. And that was the strangest thing my ears had ever heard. But that was culture. That was custom. Now, it's not the words that demonstrate the principle here. It's the attitude of the heart. For a child in the South who's taught to say sir and ma'am, to refuse to say it shows real belligerence and rebellion, doesn't it? For a child in the North who's never been taught that not to say it doesn't demonstrate any particular rebellion, you see? They have other ways of showing respect. And a child in the South can say those words, sir and ma'am, and still not be demonstrating the proper respect in the heart, can't they? It's possible to say the outward words. And and the whole point is that in this day, it was customary for wives to call their husband Lord, Master. And Sarah did that, as most wives did that. But the idea is that she did it honestly. She did it submissively. She did it not just to say the words out of custom and culture, but she did it out of a truly obedient and submissive heart to the Lord. She called her husband Lord. Now, the interesting thing about it is when we look in the Old Testament to find where she did this, we find that there's really only one example of it. It is in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 12. And there she doesn't even say it to Abraham. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's when uh, the announcement has come to Abraham that that uh, Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child And Sarah is kind of eavesdropping on the situation. And we read in verse 11 of Genesis 18, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord also, or being old also. My Lord, obvious reference to Abraham, her husband, being old also. Also, that's the only text in the Old Testament that records Sarah calling her husband Lord. But if you think about it, 
This is actually more powerful than if we'd had one example of her saying it directly to to Abraham because these are her thoughts and these reveal her habits. If she said if she talked this way to herself, then obviously this is the way she talked customarily. This is the way she she normally referred to Abraham. If she if she when she's thinking and talking to herself, if this is what comes out, she calls him my lord in that situation, then obviously that was her custom, wasn't it? And that's why the Greek participle that describes all this is a present participle, and it indicates regular habit. Sarah obeyed Abraham customarily, calling him Lord. And so Sarah, the wife of Abraham, obeyed her husband, and she respected her husband. And now Peter makes the application of all of this to New Covenant believers in the last part of verse 6. When he says, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Daughters of Sarah. Now that is an interesting idea. Daughters of Sarah. We know that the Bible, the New Testament, tells all believers, men, women, husbands, wives, single or married, that all believers are sons of Abraham. We're told that a number of times. Romans 4.11 And he that is Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. All believers... All New Testament believers are the sons and, of course, the daughters of Abraham. And we have that elsewhere in Scripture. Galatians 6, 3. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. So all believers in Christ, true believers in Christ, are sons of Abraham, because we have the same faith that Abraham had. He believed God. We believe God. He believed God unto justification. He believed God, and it was counted. It was imputed to him for righteousness. We believe God unto justification. We believe God, and our righteousness is imputed to us through faith. We probably haven't thought too much, however, about our connection to Sarah, just to Abraham. But actually, the Bible indicates both. Now, listen to these words from Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Abraham, your father, and Sarah, your mother, Sarah, who bore you. Got the same idea in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, the the, uh, two covenants. I'll just read three verses from that section. Now we, brethren, that is we who believe in Christ, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, that's Hagar and Ishmael, 
For the son of the bondwoman shall not be be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We're not children of Hagar, but of Sarah. And so, actually, all believers are as much sons and daughters of Sarah as we are sons and daughters of Abraham. There's a lot of spiritual significance there. But here, women who trust in God and show their godliness in the way described are said to be daughters of Sarah. When did these women become daughters of Sarah? As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And a quick reading of that might cause you to think that Peter is saying you become daughters of Sarah when you do good, when you're not afraid. But that really would be a misreading of the text. Here, the Greek is not present as all the other verbs and participles in these two verses are. Here's a very significant change. This verb is aorist. It is past tense, point of time, completed action. And what Peter is saying is, whose daughters you became. When? When you, like Sarah, hoped in God, believed God. In other words, you became the daughters of Sarah when you were born again. When you exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when you became daughters of Sarah. Just like when we, all of us, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when we all became sons and daughters of Abraham. Same idea, really. Well, then what about this doing good and not being afraid? Well, this probably should not be translated as a conditional um, concept like we, we have it in our Bible. It's really a descriptive evidence. Now we're back to present participles. Whose daughters you became, and how do you know? That you became the daughters of Sarah. Well, you know that if you are continuing to do good, if you are continuing to live out a life of faith, not being scared out of it because of fear and intimidation. That is the demonstration, that's the evidence that you have become a child of God, a daughter of Sarah, a son of Abraham. You do good, good works, obedience to God's word, particularly the obedience that this passage calls upon. Not afraid with any terror. Don't fear intimidation. No continual attitude of fear. Whatever that may be. In the case of these women who had unconverted husbands, and some of them did, obviously, Though your husband may intimidate and threaten, you are not going to renounce your faith in Christ. You're going to, going to respond to him in a gentle and quiet spirit, but you're not 
going to cave in. You're not going to be intimidated to renounce your faith in Christ. Why? Because you are a daughter of Sarah. You've been saved by the grace of God. You've been changed. The Holy Spirit who indwells you is not going to allow you to do that. You're going to continue on perseveringly. Or you're not going to be afraid of your husband's mistakes. You're going to submit yourself to your husband even when he's not being so wise like Abraham when he really was not wise at all. And that might scare the living daylights out of you. That if I, if I maintain this, this submissive, obedient attitude my, to my husband and he doesn't make the right choices, boy, that's going to leave me high and dry and I'm really afraid of what might happen. But if you are a daughter, a true daughter of Sarah, you're not going to be afraid of that kind of intimidation. That's not going to frighten you out of obeying God. And you're going to believe God and submit anyway. Because you're a daughter of Sarah. Well, you say, if I do that, you can't imagine what my friends and what the people in the community are going to say about me. In this day and time, being a quiet Submissive wife, why, I'll be laughed out of the tennis club. And maybe a lot worse than that. And that's not going to frighten you out of obeying God and doing right. Why? Because you have been born again. You're a daughter of Sarah. so this tells us that the most basic qualities for godliness for wives are a gentle and quiet spirit and submissive attitude toward God. And that manifests godliness as God defines it. Say, I'm going to show my godliness by talking to everybody about the Lord and passing out tracts. And that's wonderful. That's good. And that probably comes under the category of doing good works. There's nothing wrong with that. But be sure that you are that you are Focusing on the things that God particularly says demonstrate godliness is not only important that you be godly, but it's important that you accept God's definition of what godliness is and God's emphasis upon what godliness is for those who are wives. And really, these characteristics apply to all Christians. What are some of the basic characteristics of true Christianity? Well, number one, faith. Obviously, we know that. Faith, that is really trusting God. Number two, submission, which is really the working out of faith, isn't it? Submission to God, submission to God's word, submission to whatever authorities and institutions are named in God's word that we're supposed to be submissive to. Wives to their husbands, but husbands to their employers and all citizens to government, as has been described in chapter 2, and any others that are named in the Word of God, we all have a responsibility to be submissive to them. And this is the way we demonstrate our godliness. This is the way we demonstrate that we are, that we are genuine Christians. This is the way we demonstrate our trust in God. We're not trusting our employer to always be right and always have our best interests in heart. We're not trusting our government to always be right and to always have our best interests in hearts. We'd be fools if we did. But we're trusting God to honor our believing obedience, aren't we?
And God will help us in these matters as we acknowledge our need and as we seek his help. And as he shows us these things, we feel our need, don't we? Oh, woe is me. Oh, help me. Oh, dear Lord, I have some things to work on. And he'll, he's right there. That's what he's here for. That's why he gave us this passage. That's why he brought us together here today, to show us our need so that we would look to him to help us meet our need. And if all of this reveals that you have at the foundation of your being a rebelling heart, you really have never had a submissive heart like this to God, to the authorities that God has placed in your life. Don't you realize what that indicates? That's an evidence. That's a manifestation. Just like the the submissive attitude is an evidence of true conversion. That's what shows that you're daughters of Sarah and sons of Abraham. So the lack of this is the evidence of what? A heart that needs to be regenerated. And there's only one who can do that. But there is one. And if you'll go to him, go to Christ. Acknowledge your need. Cast yourself upon Him. Ask Him to create within you this kind of heart, a new heart. He will delight to do so. Shall we pray? Oh, help us, Lord. We are all in need of help. Help us to reflect what You say is true godliness. That Christ might be honored in our lives. And that you might work powerfully in our, in our lives and in our families and in our church. And Father, call to repentance and faith all those who are outside of Christ. Give them an understanding of their true condition and a desire that this need for a new heart shall be met by your grace and power. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.